If you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 1 as we continue our series, Rediscovering Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 today. I'm not going to be moving any podiums back and knocking off saxophones today, I hope. So anyway, you had to be here last week to understand that. So anyway, turn with me to Mark 1, and we're going to look at 9 through 13 this morning. But before we start, let me, let me pray for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this glorious day. We thank you for your more so glorious son, Jesus. And we thank you for your word that's living and active. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes and our ears all of our senses, most of all, that you would open our hearts to your word this morning, that, Lord, you would help us to hear the absolute amazing good news that for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that we might know you, trust you, and find eternal life in you. So, Lord, help us this morning and turn us as a sunflower turns and faces and follows the sun, that we would follow you this morning, follow you all the days of our lives. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, let's look at Mark's uh, word together this morning as we look at Mark 1, 9 through 13. Hear now God's word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, heaven You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Well, typical of Mark's fast-paced fashion, which we've seen, that Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. And he uses these phrases like immediately over and over again. And it's this fast-paced, kind of action-paced Gospel. Well, he jumps right into this scene of Jesus' baptism. And even though these are a short few verses, there is so much going on in this scene, so much going on in this event of Jesus' baptism and temptation. So we're going to look at two things today. We, 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 I, man, I could do several sermons on this passage, but we're going to look at just his baptism and temptation today. And he, Mark, as we've seen the last few weeks, Mark takes us back to the Old Testament and gives us this recap, if you will. He's really good about this, especially in chapter 1, of taking us back to the Old Testament and showing us who Jesus really is. And so this morning, Mark is going to take us back to the creation account in the book of Genesis to help us identify who Jesus is even further. I was reading through a book last week called The Cure. What if God isn't who you think he is and neither are you? Isn't that a great title? What if, what if God is not who you think he is and neither are you? And I think that's a good title because... In reality, God isn't who we think He is, is He? He really isn't. You know, we like to relate to God on our own terms. Many of us do. And we want to relate to God in ways that that He fancies us. And I think many people in our culture, many people in our world today assume, I think especially in the South, Southern United States, where it's the Bible Belt, right? You've heard that phrase. And I think the Bible Belt is here. The Bible Belt's biggest in uh, South Carolina. It's the biggest buckle, I think, South Carolina. But the Bible Belt is still here in southwestern Virginia as well. I think folks in the south assume that we already know enough about God. Now, we're not saying in an, in an, in an arrogant sense, as in we've got God figured out. No, we're not saying that. But I do think southern folks who've grown up in this culture feel like, well, we've heard enough about who God is. And so 
I think we understand enough of who he is that we just need to listen to what the preacher says about him. I think that's what a lot of folks kind of just go into this autopilot mode, if you will, cruise control. But Mark consistently introduces us to Jesus as he really is and not as the way we or the world think he is. And so he's going to take us back to the, to the history of Genesis, if you will. He's going to recap Genesis. In these five verses, and he did so efficiently, he's going to give us the entire history of creation in the world in five verses, if you will. It's, it's what I call a history of the world recap, if you will. So, to say honestly, I cannot and could not have, have come up and, and understood this if it weren't for two guys, Michael Reeves and Tim Keller. So I'm using their material this morning. And if you want to know further about how I've studied and what I've found out, I recommend these two books for you. They're so, so good. But here's what we learn in these five little verses here this morning. And this is crucial for you to understand this, that there is a dance here. There is a dance that we're going to see in these five verses. And the greatest need of your life is to be in this dance. We're going to see this morning that there is a dance. And the greatest need Every single one of y'all's lives here, me included, is to be part of that dance. And Jesus, Jesus is the only one. He is the only one who can bring you into this dance. So what do I mean by a dance here? Well, if you look at this baptism scene that we just read in verses 10 and 11, you see a pretty neat picture of a triune God here. Look up, just go, go back to these verses. Look, look at verse 10 and 11. So Jesus came up out of the water. We understand Jesus is God's son, right? He's, he's one of the persons of the triune Godhead. So we have Jesus here. And then who do we have next? We have the Holy Spirit who descends down upon him. And then we have God's spoken voice, God speaking blessing and love over his son. So right here in this short few verses here in Mark, we have a pretty amazing picture of a triune God, a trinity. Now we, when we think about the Holy Spirit, what do you think of? What image would you think of when you think of the Holy Spirit? What do you think? Think of a dove, right? I mean, you go to most Christian bookstores, you see, and if you like Christian bookstores, I'm not knocking them, but I call them the trinket stores because, you know, you can get the precious memories and the posters and all that, you know. So a lot of times you go into these stores. Some of y'all are laughing. Thank you for laughing. I thought that was funny. And if you're offended, I'm really sorry. I'm probably going to offend you lots over these next, I hope, many, many years, and I'm sorry. But you go into bookstores and you see posters of the Holy Spirit and it's a dove. You know, that's kind of what we attach to an image of the Holy Spirit. We don't think, you know, much Christian literature, modern Christian literature, depicts the Holy Spirit as a dove, right? Now, Mark, though, when he was writing to these folks thousands of years ago, them picturing the Holy Spirit as a dove, just that wasn't on their radar screen. It was a very rare thing for them to understand the Holy Spirit as a dove. As a matter of fact, the only other place in the Jewish writings where the Holy Spirit is depicted as a dove is in the Targums. Now, what is the Targums? The Targums was the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament. You know, just like we have different translations of our scriptures, the NIV and the NAS and the King James Version, the Holy Book. You know, we have all these different versions. Well, the Jews had different versions of the Old Testament to help them understand it translated into their language, the Aramaic. So the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament scriptures is called the Targum. And if you look at the Targum and you look at their account of creation and their version of Genesis, 
here's how it's translated. When it talks about, in our version, Genesis, right, when God created the world, we, we see in our version that the Spirit hovers over the waters. You remember that in Genesis 1, when God created the world? Here's what their translation says in that verse. And the earth was without form and empty, and the darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered, fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove, and God spoke, let there be light. So if you look at the Old Testament Scriptures and we look at Genesis, we see that there are three parties involved in creation of the world, right? We have God, we have God's Spirit fluttering above the waters like a dove, and we have God's Word, right? Because God, when he, how did God create? He spoke creation into existence, existence, right? You look at Genesis when you see that. God speaks creation into existence. So now jump ahead back to Mark. What is Mark doing? He's purposely drawing us back to this account of creation. The very beginning of history, when you had the Father, you had the voice, the Word, and, and if you look at John chapter 1, I know that the high school folks, y'all are studying the book of John, and I think uh, Marty and Jonathan said y'all already talked about this recently, that right, John and John 1 tells us what? Who was the Word? Who was the Word? Can we give me the Sunday school answer? It was Jesus, Yes. You ever know that's the Sunday school answer? If you never know the answer, just say Jesus, and nine times out of ten you'll be right in Sunday school. Yeah, so John 1 was the Word became flesh. The flesh dwelt among us. It was Jesus. So then if you look at the account of creation, you had the Father, you had the voice, the Word, the pre-incarnate Christ, and then you had the Holy Spirit fluttering above the waters like a dove. So Mark's saying that just as the creation of the world was a project of, of the Trinity, right? Because when God created the world, it was the Trinity, a triune God had created the world. So John is saying that the, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his ministry of redemption was also a project of the triune God. So we have creation as a project of the Trinity, right? We have redemption as a project of the Trinity. You've got to understand this, okay? So creation, project of the Trinity. Redemption, project of the Trinity, okay? Now, why is this important to understand that both creation being a project of the Trinity and redemption being a project of the Trinity? Why does that matter? Now, when we understand it, well, not understand, when we talk about, when we study, when we, when we reflect on this fundamental, foundational Christian doctrine of the Trinity, it begins to fry your brain circuits. You know what I'm talking about? Has any of you ever figured out the Trinity? If you can, no, you can't. When we really try to wrap our minds around, we take the doctrine of the Trinity at face value, it kind of fries the circuits of the brain. We really can't wrap our minds around it. Because the doctrine of the Trinity is what? It's that God is one God, eternally existent in three persons, right? That's kind of the technical definition of a triune God. God is one person, eternally existent in three persons. Now, there's been tons of ways that people have tried to creatively explain that. Uh, here's one way. Tritheism is the phrase. It's a big, fancy theological word. Tritheism, three theism, three gods. That the Trinity is like three gods who kind of stick together, right? They're in this holy huddle, these three gods, but yet they are still three gods. That's called tritheism, and that doesn't really work because... Tritheism says that there are three distinct gods who are separate. But our understanding is that it's one God eternally existent in three persons. So tritheism doesn't work. Another one is uh, unipersonalism. 
yuna meaning one person. So it's one God who sometimes takes the form of this God, and then sometimes he comes over here and takes the form of this God, and then sometimes he comes over here and takes this form. Some people have tried to illustrate that by the water illustration. You ever heard that about the Trinity? I've I've used it before with children, and I, I don't, shamefully, it's not really the best definition. But we think, okay, well, the Trinity makes sense. It's like water. Water is one substance, right? Yet it can take three forms. What? Ice, vapor, and liquid, right? That's unipersonalism. Because, again, it's one God who tends to take different forms. Or another phrase, a way we can say that is modalism. Again, that's not right. He's one God, yet eternally existent in three persons. So Trinitarianism is one God in three persons who knows and who loves one another. And it's, and it's not that he's one funda- fundamentally more one than he is three, and he's not more fundamentally three than he is one. So you got that figured out, right? Am I good? You understand it now? I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. But here's the deal. The doctrine of the Trinity is not some add-on appendage to Christianity. Like, oh, well, gosh, the old church fathers, they, they, had, you know, they saw that there were different uh, manifestations of God throughout the Scriptures, and so they had to come up with some cockamamie doctrine to help explain this. And it's not some appendage that we added on later. It's actually, it's actually foundational to who God is. The Trinity is foundational to who God is. So my hope is that you'll begin to see and you'll begin to taste as we study the Gospel of Mark and as we particularly study this passage that the identity of God is a life-changing, transforming thing. There are a couple of ways that the doctrine of Trinity has uh, transformative implications for you that I want to share this morning. And I, This is so good. First of all, you have been created in the image of God. We all hear that. We all understand that, right? We have been created in the image of God. You are created to be in an intimate relationship with God. Uh, Some theologians, C.S. Lewis and Cornelius Plantinga, put a spin on it and said that you have been created not only in the image of God, but you have been created to be invited into this dance with a trying God. And we'll see more about that in a minute. But look at verse 10 and 11 of Mark. And let's just see what happens here. So Jesus is baptized, right? He comes up out of the water, verse 10. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. The Spirit descends on him like a dove. A voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So we see that when Jesus comes out of the water, the Father envelops him and covers him with these words of love. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and descends on him and envelops Jesus with power. And it's like Mark is giving, giving us this astounding sneak peek or astounding peek into the interior of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where all of eternity, all of life springs from, all reality comes from this triune God. And so let's look at this from another angle. And I want to ask you a question, and this one might fry the circuits of your brain just thinking about this question. Maybe you have the answer, I don't know. What was God doing before the creation of the world? You ever thought about that before? What was God doing before the creation of the world? Anybody want to take a stab? (laughs) That's a heavy question, isn't it? That's a big question. Well, Michael Reeves gives a great explanation about what God was doing before the creation of the world. He says that some theologians, witty theologians, said, what was God doing before the creation of the world? He was making a hell for those who were silly enough to ask that question. (laughs) That's what he says. I thought that was pretty funny. But then he gives you the real definition. 
What was God doing before the creation of the world? Look, listen to what he says. He says that Jesus gives us that answer to that question very specifically in John chapter 17. Because he says, what was God doing before the creation of the world? Jesus answers, Father, he says, you have loved me before the creation of the world. Get this. That is the God revealed by Jesus Christ. Before God ever created, before God ever ruled this world, before anything else, God was a father loving his son. That is transformative, folks. What was God doing before he made you? Loving his son. Loving his son. And then he goes on and says that the most foundational thing in God is not some abstract quality, but the fact that God is a father. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. Another theologian, a guy named Richard of St. Victor, who lived in the 1100s in Scotland, listen to what he says. This. He kind of plays off of what Michael Reeves said, that God was a father loving his son even before creation. And he flushes this out for us. Let me just read this. I know this is a lot, but folks, this is foundational. You need to hear this. It's just strain to hear this. It's strain to, to receive this. Here's what he says. He says, if God were just one person, he could not be intrinsically loving. Since for all eternity before creation, God would have nobody to love. Okay, right. If God was a singular person, wasn't a trinity, then before creation, he was by himself. And he had nobody to love. Okay, if there were two persons, God might be loving, but in an excluding and ungenerous way. After all, when two people love each other, they can be so infatuated with each other that they simply ignore everybody else. You ever seen that? You go into the park and you see this young couple in love. You know, they're butterflies and birds and, you know, pleasant music playing in the background. And there are a thousand people around them. You know, fights are breaking out and they are completely clueless. Oh, I love you, honey. I mean, they're just, they're clueless because they're so infatuated with you. That's kind of what he's talking about. If God was two persons, then he's, uh, excluding, he's ungenerous, he, they're loving each other, but they're so infatuated with each other that they simply ignore everyone else, and a God like that would be very far from good news, he says. But when the love between two people, two persons is happy, it's healthy, and it's secure, they rejoice to share that love. And then get this connection he makes. Just so it is with God, being perfectly loving from all eternity, the Father and the Son have delighted to share their love and joy with and through the Spirit. It is not then that God becomes sharing, being triune. God is a sharing God, he says. A God who loves to include. Indeed, that is why God goes on to create. His love is not for keeping, but it is for giving away and spreading. That is astounding, folks. So you see, you can't make this stuff up. There is no other religion out there that has this foundational doctrine. None other. None other. Nobody could in their right mind even be smart enough to come up with the doctrine of the Trinity. Because God, before creation, was exchanging and sharing and giving love within the Trinity, within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Freely giving, freely promoting the other before themselves. And, and so love and glory here are really almost synonymous. They were exchanging, sharing, giving love. They were exchanging, sharing, giving, promoting glory. In fact, John 17 tells us that each person of the Trinity glorifies one another. 
Then C.S. Lewis and Cornelius Plantinga go on to say this. They say in Christianity, Lewis says, in Christianity, God is not some static thing, but he's a dynamic, pulsating activity. He is a life, almost a kind of drama, if you will. Almost, if you don't think me irreverent, Lewis says, the Trinity is like a dance, he says. And then Cornelius Plantinga goes on to say this. He says, the Bible says the Father, the Son, and the Spirit glorify one another. The persons within the Godhead, they exalt each other. They commune with each other. They defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles one another. God's interior life overflows with regard to others. That's an astounding promise. God's interior life in the Trinity overflows with regards to others. Not self, but to others. And then Lewis asked the question, well, why does this matter? What does the doctrine of the Trinity matter to you? And he says that it matters to you more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-person life is to be played out in each one of us. Joy, power, peace, eternal life are a great fountain of energy and beauty that spring up at the very center of reality and there is no other way for us to have the happiness for which we have been made, Lewis says. So why do we talk about this dance? Think about it this way. Let me illustrate this. I, by the way, I am not a good dancer. <laughs> I am horrible. I am a goofy dancer, not a graceful dancer at all. You can ask Presley Ann. I mean, we don't dance that well. She's better than I am. And I step on her toes every time we dance. Even slow dances. I mean, painfully slow. I'm still like, you know, just, I'm not a good dancer. But let me illustrate it like this. I love to go, you know, ballets. I'm not a, I'm definitely not a ballet kind of guy. But I enjoy watching ballet. I enjoy watching waltzes. I enjoy watching grand dances because they are so graceful. They're so choreographed. So you see this dance, you go and you watch this dance and it's very graceful. And in order for you to dance, to at least dance in the technical term of dance, you have to have a partner, don't you? You can dance by yourself, but that doesn't really count, I guess. Technically, that's not the proper way to define dancing. In order for you to properly dance... To enjoy dancing as it's intended to enjoy is you have to have a partner to share with, to move with. So get this. So what would be the opposite of that, of partners dancing gracefully together? The opposite of that would be like the middle school dance where you're the petrified seventh grader standing on the edge of the wall going, I am not dancing. No way. Me, that was me. (laughs) Me still. I'm not going to (laughs) dance. You kidding me? Actually, I don't care. I'm good at making a fool of myself. I don't mind. But that's the opposite of that. It's not dancing. It's being stationary because you are terrified. And you are stationary, and a stationary life is a self-centered life. I want you to repeat that in your head. A stationary life is a self-centered life. Selfishness. You are curved in on yourself. A self-centered life, almost like a planet, you want everything else to orbit around you. You're like a black hole of selfishness. That's what a stationary life is. Yeah, I give to the poor and I give money away to folks who need it because it makes me feel good about myself. Even though it looks good on the outside, in a sense, that's selfish and stationary. Yes, you have friends. Yes, you have relationships. Yes, you have family. 
you've fallen in love, but again, as long as it serves your needs. So really, self-centeredness makes everything and everyone around you really a means to an end. Selfishness, self-centeredness would say that everything orbits around me, a stationary life. Where a trying God, I hope we've seen this, is utterly characterized by mutual self-giving love. That's what the Trinity is. That his utter characteristic, the triune God, is that he is mutually interested in giving love to the other persons of the Trinity. And that's what God's been doing for all eternity. Father and Son and Holy Spirit infinitely seeking one another's good and one another's glory. And because of that, the Trinity is infinitely happy. So if a triune God who created this world and placed his image in you, you go back to Genesis. When God created Adam and Eve, there's a plural pronoun in the Hebrew that says, let us make man in our own image. It's no mistake that that's plural, folks. There's not a singular God saying, let me make man in my own image. It's let us. It's the Trinity. God has stamped this triune, loving, intimate, relational community. God has stamped his image into you. And so if we were to illustrate this opposite of the Trinity, this triune God and community dancing around one another, mutually uh, promoting one another above themselves versus the stationary dance where you're alone and self-centered, this vacuous black hole of selfishness. You know, I almost considered doing this this morning. I almost picked 10 of you to ask you to come and stand up here this morning. I see the terror in your faces. You're like, no, I'm never coming back to Wellspring. (laughs) I'm gone. I'm not going to do that to you. But visualize if you can. that There are five to ten of you standing up here, and each of you are standing, you know, about two to three feet from each other. And you're saying this. I am not going to dance. I refuse to dance. I want you to dance around me. No, I'm not going to dance around you. You dance around me. No way. You guys are to dance around me because it's all about me. You need to orbit around me. What would that look like? It would be... Would it be a dance? No. Everybody would be standing still, demanding, whining, complaining that you are to stand and dance and orbit around me. That's how we kind of illustrate this. You dance around me. You orbit around me. Right? But what happens? Nothing happens because being self-centered, no one moves because they expect everyone else to orbit around here. And here's where I'm hoping you're beginning to see some of the precious and powerful implications for us. Because if God is really a triune God, he's like this. And he really did make the universe out of an overflow of the love within the Trinity. He really stamped his image within you. Then what is your life about? Your life, folks, is about relationships. Your life is about relationships of love. Not being stationary where life is about you and you demand that others orbit around you. That is not Christian faith. And if you have different views of God, if you have a different view of God, then you're going to have different implications or understandings of what life's about. Say, for instance, atheism. That there is no God, okay? We've seen that there is a triune God. That is a foundational comfort and hope and doctrine for the Christian life. But say there is no God, and here's how this different implication or understanding of a God or not has implications in the way you actually live your life practically. So say there is, a no, there is no God that the only reason that you and I are here today is due to blind chance and natural selection. It's the whole uh, 
evolutionary biologist mentality and explanation that the survival of the fittest is right and we are just happening today to be fit enough to be here and survive. We don't know about tomorrow and each of you, if you believe that there is no God, you're an atheist, you are going to clamor and punch and crawl over everybody else to make sure that you survive. If that's the case, then we exist because of chance and we exist because of natural selection and really then how would you even explain love or beauty? If there is no God, then the biologist, the evolutionary biologist, would explain that if there is no God, that the only reason that there is, their explanation of love would be that the only reason love exists is because it's a chemical reaction of your brain. That's the only reason love exists. Chemical reaction in your brain. And so they say that emotion, uh, love is this emotion that happens because there's a chemical reaction in the brain between two people and they come together and they pass on the genetic code to one another so that the human species can continue to survive. Love is simply chemistry. Well, tell that to a mother or father who has a baby. Tell that to my sister-in-law and Ben, who just got married two weeks ago. It's not just chemistry. It's God-designed, stamped within them. And that's an implication. If, if God is a triune God, then it changes the whole way we understand love. It changes the whole way we understand beauty. Here's another implication of how a different view of God will give you a different view or understanding of life. What if God were not a triune God, but instead he was just a unipersonal God? He was a singular God. It was just him. He was alone for all eternity. Even before the creation of the world, he was alone. What if God was like that? What would be the implications? Here's a good way to filter that. If he were singular God, unipersonal, how would you answer the question differently, what was God doing before the creation of the world? If he was a singular God, what was he doing before the creation of the world? Anyone to take a stab? What would he be doing? He would be loving himself, I guess. But there really would be no love. Do you understand? Because just like it takes for you to properly dance, you have to have a partner, right? What about love? Can you properly love somebody if there is not an object to love or a person to love? If there was only one divine person, that means there was no one else to love because love can only exist, folks, in relationship. So a unipersonal God would have created the world, but not out of love, but likely probably out of boredom, perhaps, or a hunger and desire for power and greatness. But if what the Scripture tells us is true, that God from all eternity is one God, eternally existent in three persons, knowing and loving one another, mutually making one another better than the other. Relationships are love. Love are what we are created for. So then you might ask the question, well, why would a triune God then create the world that we live in? Because he was so satisfied within the Trinity, what's the point? Why did he create us? Why did he create the world? That's a great question. It's a great question. So why would God create us? God created us not to receive or get joy from us. God created us so that we can give joy away. He created us to invite us into this dance. God is saying, the Trinity is saying, this triune God is saying, if you center your life on me, wellspring, if you glorify me, then you will step into this dance for what it's, it's what you have been created for. 
You have been created not so that you will just believe in me. I've created you not just so that you'll find nice inspiration in me when times are hard. He's saying, no, if you make me the center of your life, if you center everything in your life on me, if you think of everything in your life in terms of your relationship with me, who you date, who you hang out with, what you eat, I mean, everything, not based on rules, not based on regulations, but based on relationship. If you think of everything in your life in terms of me, your relationship with me, that's where he says you'll find joy. That's what you've been created for. So a couple of questions. Are you in this dance with God who loves you so infinitely, or are you standing on the wall afraid to dance, afraid to take that risk, afraid to trust him? Are you in the dance or, or do you just talk to God every so often when things are hard or when you're in trouble in life? Are you in the dance or are you finding life from desperately wanting others to orbit around you? That you're this sucking, continuous black hole of need and selfishness and you're demanding others to orbit around you? Or are you dancing with the Trinity? Young life, their tag phrase is that you were made for you are made for this dance. I'm not going to end here because there's one more thing we need to see. I'm tempted to, but you got to hear this. I know you're tired, but bear with me. This is so good. I want us to see how this connects to Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness because understanding who the Trinity and his love for you and communion with him and connectivity with him in this dance is the only way that you can walk, grow, and thrive and survive and do battle in this Christian life against the enemy of your souls who hates you and hates God and hates his glory. This is the only way we can go to battle. You need to get this. So let's look at how when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, just look at 12 and 13 real quickly with me and we'll, 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 we'll scoot through this. 12 and 13, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to Jesus. So Mark is showing us that God has created us to be in this divine dance with him. But this divine dance, the Christian life, is not a cakewalk, is it? It is a war. It is a battle. So we see that Mark made these parallels in the Old Testament to the life of Jesus and creation when he was baptized. We saw in Genesis, remember we saw the Spirit of God moving over the face of the waters, fluttering like a dove. God speaks, right, and brings the world into being. Humanity, Adam and Eve, is created and history is forever altered, right? So what's the next thing that happens when God created Adam and Eve, when the Spirit moved over the face of the water, He speaks the world into existence. Adam and Eve are created. History is forever altered. And then the next thing that happens is what? Satan tempts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now look at Mark. See this parallel. The Spirit, present at the baptism of Jesus, right? Right? Water poured over him, or dunked, if you will. If he's Baptist, he was dunked. Ha uh-huh. ha, okay. Sorry. A new humanity, right? Christ being the second Adam. Paul makes that so clear for us in Romans. So there's the Spirit, the water, God speaks, a new humanity. History is forever altered when Jesus came. And then what? Just like Adam and Eve were tempted. Do you see the parallel? He's sent into the wilderness, and Satan tempts Jesus. He is the second Adam, and he redeems the failure of the first Adam. You see, it was Jesus' mission to go head to head with Satan. 
Notice what the passage says. It says the Spirit compelled him to go into the wilderness. It wasn't voluntary. The Spirit compelled him. The second person of the Trinity or third person of the Trinity compelled him to go into the wilderness because it was Jesus' mission to go head to head with not an impersonal enemy because Mark treats Satan as a reality and so should you folks. Let me tell you, you should treat him as a reality because he is a reality. Absolutely. He is a reality. We get the term spiritual warfare really from here because Jesus went head to head against the enemy for you. Head to head against an actual enemy. Scripture teaches us that there are real forces of evil against us. And they are incredibly complex, incredibly powerful. C.S. Lewis even said that only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. Isn't that true? So Satan is the chief of these forces, and it's his mission. It's his desire to tempt us away from this dance with God. So in the Garden of Eden, what did Satan do? The Garden of Eden, Satan led Adam and Eve to get away from God and dance by themselves, didn't he? He led Adam and Eve away to dance by themselves. Here's the parallel. What did Jesus do in the wilderness? Or what did Satan do to Jesus in the wilderness? He led Jesus away from staying in the dance with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. What was, what was God saying to Adam and Eve before they were tempted? What did he say to Adam and Eve before Satan tempted them? God said, Adam and Eve, because you love me, don't eat from this tree. Because you trust me and you find delight in that trust, you find delight in being in relationship with me, obey me about the tree and you will live, Adam and Eve. Obey me about this tree and you will live. But what did Adam and Eve do? They didn't obey him about the tree. They failed the test. And we have been failing this test again and again ever since. And the truth is, folks, the enemy of your souls will not rest until he has tested you and tested you and tested you and tested you. He will not stop testing you. He will not rest and, t- and, and stop from whispering the lies to you again and again. And here's, here's the lie that he whispers to you. You want to hear the lie? The lie is this. Believer, Christian, this idea of God's perfect love, that he delights to share that love outside, uh, outside of the Trinity, that, that he is calling you to make yourself vulnerable to others, and for you to orbit around others instead of you demanding that they orbit around you, that will never work, he says. It's, it's rubbish. It'll never work. Think about this. What happens to Jesus in the wilderness? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, but the gospel writer Matthew does. When Satan comes to tempt Jesus, what was the temptation? Satan was tempting Jesus to step out of orbit with his Father. To step out of orbit with the Holy Spirit. And instead, to make everything else center on him. Satan saying, Jesus, you need to protect yourself from these humans. Don't do what your Father tells you. You need to protect yourself. And as you read through the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you see again and again how Satan assaults Jesus again and again. And when you get to the final assault, you know where the final assault happens? It happens in actually another garden. The first assault was in a garden, wasn't it? With Adam and Eve. Where was the final assault? It was the Garden of Gethsemane. The final big assault where the enemy thought he would win. He assaulted Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the opposite of the Garden of Eden because Jesus came to battle the lie that Satan perpetuates in our hearts to stay stationary, to be about yourself. 
Don't trust God. Don't do the dance. Don't be in the dance with the Trinity. Be yourself. Orbit around yourself. Be this black hole of selfishness. You deserve a break today, the enemy says. But God says to Jesus, just like he said to Adam and Eve, obey me about the tree, and they failed. God said to Jesus, obey me about the tree. But this time, the tree was a cross. He says, son, obey me about the tree, and you will die. And Jesus did. He did die. He's gone before you in this very real battle. He's gone before you. And what Jesus enjoyed from all eternity, he came to give you. What Jesus enjoyed from all eternity, he came to invite you to enjoy. Are you dancing with him? Are you in the dance, folks? It's my hope and it's my prayer and it's my desire that you hear what the Father spoke to his son when he said, Son, I love you, and I am well pleased with you. If you are in the dance of Jesus, God says to you, when you stand before him in that final judgment day, son or daughter, I am well pleased with you, and I love you. Are you in the dance of Jesus? Are you? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, this is heavy stuff. This is uh, no joke. This doctrine of the Trinity is a reality. And it's more than just a doctrine. It is, it, is, it is you. You are the Trinity. You are God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you delight for us to be in this dance with you. Lord, forgive us for standing against the wall and, and demanding that others dance around us. Forgive us for demanding in our marriages that our spouses dance around us, that our children dance around us, that our friends, neighbors, or coworkers dance around us. Lord, once again, would you drown out the lies of the enemy and we would hear the symphony once again and we would run to the dance hall instead of standing in fear and standing in selfishness. Lord Jesus, would you transform us? It takes the absolute power of Jesus obeying the tree and dying on the cross to break this curse and spell of selfishness and hate. So Lord Jesus, come and break into our orbit of selfishness and cause us to orbit around you and your glory and in your love. We pray these things.